right. Well, hello and welcome. Uh, this is the first uh, official stream of the Bread Theory channel. Um, just to get started, I'm going to tell you a little bit about who I am and what this channel is going to be about. Uh, and then we'll get into doing some audiobooks and we'll play some video games and I'll answer any questions you guys have. Um, so my name is Zach. I go with he, him pronouns. And I'm starting this channel primarily to help people who uh, may be interested in, in leftist theory but haven't had the chance to look into it much themselves uh, for whatever reason. Maybe it's just uh, seems daunting to figure out where to start. Maybe you like to have a guide to help you through it, someone who knows a little bit more than you, which I guess that would be me in this case. Um, and. I know for myself, uh, when I am listening to audiobooks, it helps me to have uh, just something visual to focus my, my uh, vision on just a little bit, um, and then I can concentrate on whatever the, the audio is just a little bit better. Uh, so that's the idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play video games, you know, nothing too like modern or, or, or attention pulling. I'm not going to see like uh, cyberpunk. 2077 on here or anything like that. It's going to be mostly classic games, uh, a lot of sandbox sort of games like uh, SimCity uh, or uh, real-time strategy games that are simple, like the one we're going to do tonight, Majesty. Um, and at the same time, we're going to listen to uh, audiobooks. And, and to, to start with, we're going to do audiobooks that are all in the public domain, for obvious reasons. I don't, I don't have the rights to any of the, the newer stuff. Um, and also it gives us a good foundation to, to then work uh, and work up and understand uh, the more modern stuff, which we will get to eventually, which is going to be a little bit more tricky to do that sort of thing. It's going to involve, uh, like right now I'm envisioning uh, just having everyone purchase the same audiobook and we'll all listen to it. It won't come over the, the stream or anything, but I'll, I'll, I'll cue you to like... Uh, pause and start and stop. But for now, we're just going to do the stuff that's in the public domain, stuff you can find online uh, for free, so that uh, we can get that good basis of, of knowledge going. Um, so before we get to the audiobooks, I, I wanted to, to tell you a little bit about myself and, and kind of help build the, the framework, the, the lens that we're going to use to uh, evaluate these theories. So there's been basically three uh, overarching theories, um, schools of thought that have dominated my life, my adult life, that is. Um, the first of which being urban planning. I did my undergraduate and my graduate degree. I have a master's of arts in urban planning. Um, and the subset of urban planning, which is basically uh, helping to organize the various parts of the city make it run more smoothly, function better, stuff like that. So within that, uh, a subset of urban planning is a school of thought called New Urbanism. And basically what it comes down to is just good community design. So things like walkability, how many uh, businesses or, or jobs or can you get to the grocery store just by walking out your front door, you know, walking before you get tired. You know, a five-minute walk, an easy walk. So how walkable is, is a space? Uh, it, it talks about things like mixed use. So 
the dominant planning form in America right now, anyway, is, is called Euclidean zoning, or you could think of it as segregational zoning, where you have um, residential, like all the houses in one spot, you have commercial over in a different spot, and then kind of wherever the, the least desirable land, that's where the, the uh, industrial goes into. So that's, that's our common, our current form. Mixed use kind of flips that on its head, says why not put everything in one building? It eliminates the need to, to have as, as long commutes. You don't separate everything out. You can make cars less necessary to get between these places. Um, and you just have more interactions, you know, more natural community interactions as you're going uh, from one to another. So that's what mixed use is. And then there's density. Uh, Neurobinism tends to favor higher density. Uh, the idea being that you have to have kind of a critical mass of people to make a city function how a city does. You know, have you know enough to support a university and to have ideas and, and, and uh, businesses interacting with one another. Stuff like that. Uh, third space is another important part. And that could be any place that's not your job or your home. So anything outside of that would be things like uh, a coffee shop you might gather at. It could just be something as simple as your front porch. It's kind of an in-between space between your totally private home and the, the public out on the street. So that would be a third space. It could be something as big as, as a public square, which you don't see as much in American city planning anymore, unfortunately. But new urbanists tend to favor that sort of thing. It involves incorporating nature more, just wherever it can, not just having kind of the, the sterile, uh, almost, uh, I, I guess sterile is the best word for it, uh, like just like the green, perfectly mowed lawn, you know, a few lollipop trees and, you know, lollipop shaped trees, and, and, and not much else. It talks about bringing nature in, helping it work for the city, uh, you know, with the idea of things like uh, trees help more than anything with uh, stormwater runoff. We can help prevent flooding if you have enough trees because they just suck up the water so fast compared to just a lawn or just running straight off in the sewers. So stuff like that. They talk about meaningful architecture and this would be, um, you can go to pretty much any place in America right now and it's the same sort of, you know, kind of the houses in the suburbs with the giant car uh, you know, two or three car garage that's the dominant feature um, you know, the aluminum siding in, in some kind of non-offensive beige uh, and it you couldn't tell from looking on any random spot in Google Maps where in America you are so meaningful architecture is just something that, that ties together a region uh, you know so you know like you know exactly when you see the Eiffel Tower that you're looking at Paris you know when you see um, something like Big Ben. It doesn't have to be an icon like that, but you could just you could tell like uh, English architecture apart from German architecture, apart from Japanese architecture. These places have uh, a language uh, to them. So they, they talk about having that as, as kind of helping to root people in a place and, and, and think of themselves more as citizens of their community, not just people that happen to live there. Uh, Urbanists talk a lot about uh, interconnected and robust biking, walking, and transit infrastructure that takes precedence over car infrastructure. The idea being that mass transit, as well as just biking and walking, um, takes up the least amount of space and the thing that's at the most premium in 
good, healthy city is space. So you're not designating as much land for uh, cars in, in terms of just like parking. Like, there's, there's something like uh, seven parking spots for every man, woman, and child in the entire nation, regardless of age. That's a lot of parking that just sits empty. You can't have you know, a car, and most of them have seven cars to put in seven spots. Right, but this this includes things like you know big box stores and their options of parking and, and whatnot. So, so that's that, that, that's not only does that spread things out um, and and make cars more necessary because you you know you don't live as close to to where you shop. You have you have to take the car if it's being spread out by parking lot after parking lot and wider and wider streets and stuff like that. But also it costs a lot of money. It's 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 non productive infrastructure really, other than being a place that someone might park a car it doesn't really do anything. So, new urbanists tend to be against that sort of thing in favor better, safer, cleaner uh, mass transit, and then also appropriate biking facilities and, and sidewalks, stuff like that. And the godmother of uh, new urbanist thought was Jane Jacobs, and she would she talk about what's known as the cheerful hurly burly. It's kind of the 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 kind of frenetic, almost chaotic energy of, of walking down some uh, really vibrant neighborhood. So you'd have like, you know, cart, uh, you'd have cart sellers selling like produce and flowers and whatnot. You'd have people dining out on, on patios. You'd have neighbors running into each other and saying hi. It's just kind of all these interactions that, that happen just from allowing the, the city to kind of unfold as it, as it does and, and, and centering people, the people that live in the city over the things that serve the city, like like uh, car infrastructure, that sort of thing. So there's new urbanism. That's that's the thing that's uh, one of the main things that has guided my thought so far. Uh, beyond that is uh, the the second realm of thought, which is permaculture. Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with permaculture, it's basically a design system. Most often. It is applied to um, like farms and food production stuff like that, but really you can use it to design anything to be uh, more integrated, um, more sustainable, more, more resilient, able to withstand shocks of uh, climate change or, or uh, different damages that, that people might inflict on the earth. Uh, and so the, one of the founders, Bill Molson, in his uh, is still pretty seminal work. The uh, Permaculture Designer's Manual laid out the three ethics of permaculture, the first of which being earth care. Um, earth care is, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. Care for the earth. It's, it's uh, the only home we have, you know, despite what Elon Musk would have you think. Uh, it's going to be our only home for the foreseeable future. So we got to kind of take care of it if we want to have any sort of ability for future generations to make the same living and have the same kind of fulfilling lives that we do. Uh, then the second ethic is people care. Again, that, that's, that goes beyond just uh, caring for your family, but it, it, it talks more about caring for all people. You know, what's, what's best for all people? What are ways that we can live uh, together? Um, and the third ethic, which has been somewhat controversial over the years, he originally laid it out as setting limits to population and consumption, 
which was later distilled down by uh, his co-founder, David Holmgren, into the, the concept of fair share. But Molson, when explaining the concept of uh, setting limits, Mollison said, uh, by governing our own needs, we can set resources, resources aside to further the above principles. So the idea of returning the surplus of whatever you make um, to the first two uh, categories, the people and the earth. Um, so that, that was just summarized as being fair share. And then later, David Holmgren, in his book, um, oops, Permaculture Principles, laid out, he kind of distilled down Permaculture Designer's Manual into 12 key principles, um, those being Observe and Interact, which is basically just the scientific method. Uh, so you are an actor in your environment. You're not just a passive observer. You go out, you, take, you make little changes, you see what happens, you notice the different patterns over, you know, not just a day or two, but a season, a, a year, um, to kind of integrate yourself better with, with whatever design you're working with or whatever design you're working with. Uh, catch and store energy is the second principle, and that could be anything from having uh, solar panels or solar water heaters to catching rainwater to just uh, taking the energy of um, animals that pass through your system and then, and then enticing them to leave some of or do some of the work for you. You know, so maybe you attract bugs that, that help you get some of the bugs that you're not too keen on having. You know, help things become more of a dynamic equilibrium, more of a mimic of. Uh, of a natural ecosystem. Then the, the third principle is obtaining yield, and that's kind of the definition of sustainability. But you, you have to be able to take out uh, more energy than you than you yourself put into it. So if you're if you're this could be something like uh, petroleum inputs. If you're using artificial fertilizer, if you're using uh, heavy machinery, and you're using more energy than the, the food the fodder, the fuel, the fiber, and the pharmacy, what are known as the five F's of uh, permaculture design. Uh, if you're not getting as much out as you're putting in in terms of energy, then eventually you're going to run out. Uh, eventually that, that energy source, I mean, you're not being sustainable in, in what you're doing. Uh, number four is apply self-regulation and accept feedback. That means not taking more land than you need to use. That means not taking more resources than you need to uh, provide for yourself and provide for a living for yourself. Um, and then number six is use and value renewable resources. Pretty self-explanatory. Uh, just kind of have our light, the, the lightest footprint on the earth in whatever you're designing. Um, number six is produce no waste. Uh, there's, a, there's a common saying in permaculture that the problem is the solution and what that means basically is say you have um, a lot of manure from animals from say farm animals that you're raising instead of looking at that as a as a problem as a waste product you can look at that as in, you don't have a manure problem you have a lack of fertilizer buyer problem so trying to connect up your quote-unquote waste product someone that can use it to actually produce something. Uh, number seven is design 
from the patterns to the details. And it's just, it's, it's just good practice for whatever you're doing. If you hyper-focus on one you know, small technique, um, and then you, you, when, it, when it comes to time to putting it in, you find that the, the broader uh, streams of, of energy or, or factors, maybe it's, maybe it's wind or water, don't line up with your design, well then you've already invested a lot of energy in something that's, that's not going to do anything good for you. So, you know, first you look at, at the, the broader patterns, like uh, where does the wind come from, where does the sun come from, what animals are in the air, and talking about just doing uh, like farm planning or, or food production planning. Um, but it could be any sort of patterns, where do people come? You know, you want to you wanna put up a high-rise, maybe you're going to design a, a high-rise using permaculture principles. Well, you should probably first figure out where most people want more housing. You know, if you put it just way out in, say, a farm field, that, that the patterns out there are not going to line up with the patterns that you need to be successful. So it's just looking at the, the broader patterns and then drilling down into what solutions, what techniques can, can be used um, to best take advantage of those patterns. Then there's integrate, don't segregate. Uh, this idea being that um, there's a principle called stacking functions in, in a permaculture where uh, you may have a particular plant like, a, say, clover to use as a ground cover, but then it also fixes nitrogen. It provides fertilizer to some of the other plants that need it. Um, and then those plants that need nitrogen, maybe maybe it's corn, maybe that corn acts as a, uh, a pole for a bean to climb up. A bean is a nitrogen fixer. So we've grown the pole instead of having to go buy a pole. We've put nutrients into the soil instead of having to buy nutrients by, by integrating these systems, making them work together, uh, you end up with more of a product for, for less of an effort. Uh, and use small and slow solutions is, is the ninth principle. People get uh, pretty carried away when designing whatever it is, uh, pretty easy. You know, you can, you can want to go and build, you know, buy that 100 acre farm and, and just do everything that you've been dreaming about and, and uh, planning for years. And, you know, if you, if you were to jump in without really starting with something small first, you're going to make a lot of errors. And it's, it's good to make errors if you can recover from them. So if you want to do, say, uh, chicken production, and you start out with one chicken rather than a hundred, um, you're going to learn a whole lot about the do's and don'ts of, of chicken production, even more than you would learn in, in a book. It, you know, there's something to be said for first-hand uh, knowledge and experience. Um, so the idea is that you start small and then you move out and, and you're never getting ahead of, of what you're capable of sustaining and, and growing. And, uh, yeah, that sort of thing. So there's that. And then there's use and value diversity. Uh, this is a very important one, in my opinion, uh, especially when it comes to things like food production. People get uh, 
you know, they get good with one thing, and that's all the, all that they want to do. It's hard to to integrate more into the system once you, you know you know corn you know, and that's all you want to grow. But uh, it's it's better to to have diversity, like you say. So you learn to do just beans, and you add that in. That's 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 adding diversity, and it's making everything better uh, in your system at the same time. So that goes into using value diversity. I know diversity of approaches to diversity of thought, not just going with whatever the the, the star permaculture designer of the day uh, advocates for, but um, you know, looking at different opi opinions, looking at different techniques, all that sort of thing. Uh, and that goes in with using edges and valuing the marginal. Uh, if you look at any sort of biome, say it's like a forest biome, uh, the place where there's the most activity and the most productive value is always going to be at the edges. So plants that live in the forest and plants that live, on, say, on the plains, where the, it, it meets the plains, you're going to find both those plants in the same area. Uh, animals that, that live in one or the other, they're going to cross back and forth. Um, a place like a, a watering hole would be another uh, very important edge uh, where you're going to have a lot of energy and in the form of animals and, and what they do coming in and going out. Uh, I always want to look for those edges to because it's always going to be the most productive part. Uh, the most productive part of an ocean, the most uh, biologically diverse, is always the shallows, like the coral reef. Coral reefs don't go down most of them more than, you know, say 20, 25 feet. You get out into the open ocean, and it's basically thought of as a desert. It's that, it's that marginal area, that, that liminal space, that uh, is the most valuable. So maximizing that edge in whatever design you do, that's important. So if you if you're to look at that in terms of urban planning, that could be uh, instead of just having a cafe, having sidewalk seating. That's an edge. That's an edge too. That could be a, um, a place where people interact and where people meet, just naturally. Um, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah. So. And the final principle is creatively use and respond to change because you know, that's that's the that's gonna be the, the biggest constant is change in, in any system. People change taste, people change where they live, people uh, change their environment. They, they, they change what's in, available to you. Um, species change, you know, stuff is changing all the time. You can't just set up something really great and just hope that it always follows that pattern. chat box on the bottom, that's why I wasn't popping up on here. That should work a little better. Uh, so yeah, so that, that basically sums up uh, the permaculture part of um, the driving forces of my life, and, and the second layer of the lens that I want to use to, to evaluate these, these theories. So we'll move on then to Look at what happens when you combine these two theories. Now I'm talking about that edge effect again. So what happens when you take permaculture, um, as represented by the, the symbol on the right, and new urbanism, as represented by the, the symbol on the left, 
and you put them together, you get something like the transition network. Uh, the transition network, also known as transition towns, um, is uh, is a, a theory that tries to bring permaculture into community design. Uh, so they they will do things like uh, you know integrating ecological practices into new urbanism, using more solar panels and using mass transit in a better way. Um, but going beyond that, designing for uh, potential shocks to the system through climate change. So looking at the different patterns that uh, are going to be emerging as a result of climate change, things like uh, um, rising sea levels, uh, desertification, extra flooding, stuff like that, and, and using that to help make towns and cities more resilient and, and uh, preemptively respond to the change that is, is already starting to happen in many places. Um, so that's pretty great. So that's just combining two of these ideas. Now we'll, we'll talk about the third idea is uh, anarcho-communism, uh, as represented by the, the red and black flag down there. And this is the, the newest idea to myself. I hadn't really looked into it until just basically the past couple of years. But once I did, I found that it kind of acted as though a keystone. It was the thing that made the other two concepts really make sense. And, and work not just for an elite few or, or an impassioned few, but for everybody, really. And I feel that, that by integrating this third theory in, we can get some really cool uh, and novel results. So if you look at this, this Venn diagram of the three different theories all together, um, actually, let me back up just one second. We'll talk a little bit about what anarcho-communism Anarcho-communism involves things such as mutual aid. You may have heard of mutual aid before. And that's the idea of uh, if you have something extra, you know, even if it's just money, it could be extra food, it could be extra anything, uh, just sharing it with people that need it, connecting up people that, that have with people that need without having to go through some sort of you know, bureaucratic intermediary. Just looking, being connected to your neighborhood, being connected to the people around you, uh, to the point where you know when they need something and if you can't get it yourself trying to find someone who can give it to them it's, it's basically just uh, another way to put it might be the gift economy just uh, instead of involving transactions just give what you got give your excess you, you make uh, an extra uh, pan of muffins and you, you just share it with your neighbors just without anything expecting anything in return um, so that, that to me is what mutual aid means uh, there's also things like abolition of unnecessary hierarchies. You know, uh, statistics show that the number one predictor of where you end up in your life is where you began, and that's that's uh, that's socially in terms of your power and your connections to the world around you, uh, as well as you know, just monetarily, your ability to to make profit. That's more than anything, more than any other factor, has to do with where you start out. Uh, so that means that uh, people that start out in a high place are going to end up at the top of the hierarchy, whether or not they deserve to be there. I mean, I'm sure we can all think of examples of people that uh, have run businesses that were completely incompetent. Uh, the idea of, of doing away with 
unnecessary hierarchies extends to things like uh, the business place. You know, you think about it, uh, democracy is pretty great. It's, it, it always polls very well. People seem to like it a lot. The idea of one man, one vote, or one person, one vote um, seems to resonate pretty well with people. They understand that as, as a pretty uh, pure concept of fairness. Well, why does that only apply in the political realm? Why can't that apply in the private realm too? Why well, can't workers have more to say in their working conditions or the, the salary that they make or the, the sorts of, of people that they're, the sorts of clients that their um, business is going to focus on, you know, these sorts of things. Why not have more democracy in the workplace? That, that goes into the idea of anarcho-communism as well. Uh, there's also the concept of, uh, this would be far into the future, but it, it, the long-term goal would be the abolition of wage labor and just uh, having all for all. So, you know, uh, instead of having money get in the middle of everything as, as a way to distribute stuff, just people produce and then they, they give to whoever is in need. You know, you, you set up a, a worker-owned cooperative and you uh, produce uh, whatever it is, a widget or whatever. And then you, you just give it out to the, the communities nearby or far by or far away. It doesn't necessarily have to be a trade. There's not to be a transaction. It's just it's just all for all. Um, and we'll get into more of these concepts, especially as, as we get into some more of the theories. But this is just a broad overview right now. Um, and then uh, the idea of everyone starting from an equal playing field and not being able to drop below that point. So, so if you think about it, the basics of life are things like uh, food and water and shelter and clothing, uh, medical care, education, transportation, um, communication and community, stuff like that. So uh, just by being alive, uh, anarcho-communists believe that people deserve all of those things and that there's nothing that someone should be able to do to have the basics of, of a living uh, taken away from them. So, but on the flip side of that is instead of having people scraping and, and hurting themselves and, and running themselves down, working jobs that are bad for them that they don't, they don't get much out of, um, giving them a base line that they can then use to reach their higher potential. So if they would be a famous artist, but they just never had the education opportunity or, or the, the, they were too worried about providing food for their family all the time. Well, you've, you've lost, the world has lost that great art that that person could have otherwise produced. But if you give them a base, a baseline of support, just it doesn't have to be a mansion, but a housing that's safe and, and, and enough for a person, uh, and then basics of food and, and, and whatever, that takes away all these arbitrary roadblocks that, that mostly have to do with, again, where people start out with in their life and what, what opportunities they just naturally have to them. It gets, a, it gets rid of all that stuff. It takes all those stumbling blocks out of the way and allows people to reach their higher potential and the world is then richer for it. Um, and then the, the last concept I want to talk about uh, with anarcho-communism is just the idea of keeping personal property, so things like your car or, you know, your clothing or 
you know, things that you use for your personal life. But doing away with private property, and there's, there's a key distinction, private property, yeah, the way that we colloquially use it is just anything that, you know, is mine. So that could include personal property. But the way that anarcho-communists would see it, it would be anything that's used to make a living. So it could be anything from the machinery and the building and the land for a factory to basically the idea of, of for business enterprises, people, the workers collectively own it, uh, but then anything you need to, to stay alive, to sustain yourself is, uh, is something that you um, get to keep and, you know, no one gets to take away from you. All right, so going back to the Venn diagram then again, you start to see that when you overlap even just two of these ideas, you get some cool things. We already talked about the Transition Towns Network, but when you combine things like uh, New Urbanism, which is good uh, organization of communities with anarcho-communism, you get things like uh, strong unions, like the IWWS, that's the, the symbol for the International Workers of the World. You get things like worker-owned cooperatives, stuff like that. So these, these are ways to share power and also strengthen uh, and, and help people set roots into the communities they live in. When you combine uh, permaculture with anarcho-communism, you get things like uh, the eco-village movement. So that's people trying to live off the grid um, in a very horizontally rather than even vertically uh, structured hierarchy where, where community members tend to have more of a say in the way that their uh, communities run. They tend to own certain parts of the community collectively. Maybe the fields they own collectively, maybe uh, some of the housing, the structures they own collectively, but, but that tends to happen. But the problem when you just do two of these is Say we'll, we'll start in this quadrant here. For uh, if you just do anarcho-communism and new urbanist ideas together, you're leaving out a lot of the ecological impact that that could still have on the communities. So just because you have a worker-owned cooperative doesn't mean they're not going to do things that harm future generations' ability to uh, sustain themselves. It doesn't mean they're going to necessarily think about even, let alone plan for changes to climate or to, to land use patterns or anything like that. So without that third piece, you're, you're, you're still could be setting yourself up for a pretty bad disaster. The same is true with the Transition Towns Network. One of the, one of the pitfalls of the Transition Towns Network is that it tends to be uh, people that, I, I'm speaking personally, I, I actually started uh, one of the chapters here. I live in the, the Twin Cities Metro. I started the, the chapter for the North Metro, and what I found was um, there was a little bit of support for the idea, but most of the people that were coming to contribute their own ideas already had things like a house or land. They already had, you know, middle class jobs. It tended to be more attractive to the, the middle to upper class, and I, I believe that is the case uh, throughout. So take away anarcho-communism and you're just catering to um, the richer sort of people. The same sort of thing happens with the, uh, the eco-villages movement. Uh, you get uh, a lot of people that have the means to move 
Um, we also get a lot of people that are just going to reject uh, urban civilization. You know, they get you get kind of a primitive, primitivist mindset, which in some cases is okay. Like you know, definitely it's okay for people to want to be connected more to the land and even to live on the land. There's nothing wrong with rural living, but if you're doing that at the expense of, you know, the communities, the, the big cities, well, you're leaving a whole big chunk of people out. It basically is only available to the people with the means and the desire to live out in the country. So that leaves out, so that's what happens when you leave out uh, new urbanism with that. So you leave out that part and uh, you still can, you can set yourself up for helping some people but not all people. So what I'm really concerned with, the, the lens that I want to build to, to evaluate these different sorts of uh, theories, these different sort of leftist theories uh, throughout history, is what happens when you combine all three of these theories. And I think there's some really cool things that happen when you do that. Um, it can lead to things like, uh, I would say that a Food Not Bombs collective would be an example that, that is, is taking food waste and turning it into something positive, for the most part, that is in integration or integrating people better into their community, helping communities uh, thrive and, and serve their, their citizens better. And it also is tends to be structured on a very horizontal level. You tend to see anarchists in general be the ones that, that do things like a Food Not Bombs collective. So that would be one example of what I think is in the middle here. But I think we need a name for it. Like all these different practices, they have names already. So things that people at least know them by. So I, I, what I'm interested in is, is just, just giving this one a name. And so that the name that I've come up with is Solaris. That's just what I'm going to call the idea of combining all those three. And I think, uh, well, first of all, the name, the, the word Solaris uh, means of the sun. It's a Latin word. Um, and I think the sun is a great metaphor for what is really at the heart of all those three. And what I see is at the heart of all those three, what they're all striving for is interconnection and interdependence. Lots of connections, lots of, of being closer to the land, being closer to the people around you, uh, building up strong communities, but also doing it in an, a fair and equitable way that, that um, connects people to the power uh, the, both the social power and the, and the, and the physical power that um, governs their life. So, I've come up with this symbol on my own. Uh, so basically, just to, to give you a brief idea of what the symbol is, uh, we have the sun in the background, representing connection uh, between all things. And with that, you, you don't have any, even have to get into like a, a woo-woo sort of thing, but, but literally, uh, all the matter that is contained on Earth, um, for the most, or virtually all the matter, all the matter that, that's in your body, uh, at one point started its, its existence inside uh, a star. And, and through just the, the eons, and through jettisoning out, uh, through fission into the various materials that, that now make up the Earth, it, it all collected, in, just happened to collect in this area, and uh, here we are, you know. So, so not only is it, is, is it uh, a literal, more of a literal metaphor for uh, interconnection, the thing that connects us all, but 
virtually all of the energy that, that helps us shape our own world uh, and, and remake our own world in whatever way we like comes from the sun, with the, with the exception of geothermal and nuclear energy. Everything else, the wind is governed by the sun, waves are governed by the sun, uh, the flow of water, and then solar energy itself, all of this has to do with the sun. So I think the sun is a good metaphor for the interconnected, uh, for being interconnected between one another. It's the thing that binds all of our lives together. It's the thing that organizes our lives. It literally organizes the cycles of, of awake and sleep, you know, so on and so forth. So within that sun, we have a downward pointed triangle. And this is a this is a simple fractal of triangles, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, to begin with, the triangles is has long been uh, a symbol of of solidarity with various oppressed people, from the Jews and the the socialists and communists in concentration camps in uh, Nazi Germany, to the LGBTQIA movement, um, just up and up through the ages. Uh, the, the downward facing triangle has been a solidarity, or a symbol of, of solidarity um, uh, to those who are oppressed. So I think it's an important symbol to keep on using to kind of center this, this lens. Um, as well as it, it, it's been a symbol of feminism for quite some time, which I think is another important part of leftist theory. Uh, the reason that I have made it into uh, a series, or made it into a fractal triangle, which is a larger triangle made of smaller triangles, is to represent the the sum being greater, or, uh, the the, um, the total being greater than the sum of its parts. So, out of this one large triangle, you can make thirteen different triangles if you if you look at it, if you just uh, look at it different ways. So. Uh, this is this again talking about the, the synergy, the interconnection between these uh, different schools of thought, these ideas, and between all people. Uh, I chose green to represent uh, the natural world and, and people's connection to it, just kind of running throughout our lives. Um, so yeah, so this is this is just going to be the symbol that we're going to use as we go through and uh, talk about these various theories. All right, so that's basically what I wanted to, to cover in terms of where this channel is going to go. Uh, like I said, I'm, at some point I'm going to put out a kind of a syllabus or a schedule of the books we're going to cover. I'm going to try and alternate between uh, communist theory and anarchist theory. Uh, I think for the second book, I'm going to go with uh, Peter Kropotkin, considered one of the fathers of anarchy. I'm going to go with his... Uh, um, Conquest of Bread, which is, you know, where I, where I chose my, where I got my name for this channel from. Um, I think how I'm going to do it uh, is probably do just one, we're going to start with just one chapter tonight, and then uh, next time I do a stream, probably next weekend, uh, we'll go to chapter two. There's only four chapters, the, the fourth one being very short, so we'll probably just do three and four together. Um, but we're just going to go through. Um, I'm going to give you a video game to look at while you're doing it. I'm going to turn the sound down on it uh, so we're not doing sensory overload or anything. Um, just something to, to kind of focus your eyes on while you're absorbing the, the, the theories. And then from time to time, if something catches my ear and I, I want to expound on it or kind of give a, you know, 
know, my take on it or relate it to one of the theories that we've been talking about tonight, um, I'll just pause it and talk about it. If someone has questions, you know, feel free to ask. I'll try to keep on top of, of how the chat goes. Um, so yeah, but it's just going to kind of be pretty relaxed, pretty chill. Um, uh, we'll just we'll give it a give it a try. See how this this goes. Um, so we're going to start with so, so this is Majesty. Um, this game that uh, came out in I believe the early two thousands, might have been the late nineties. Um, it's a it's known as a real time strategy. So you have different minions that you recruit. Um, but the, what, what sets it apart from most real-time strategy games is that instead of being able to just grab a whole bunch of your guys and say, you know, task them to go get the bad guy or whatever, uh, they all have their free will. So you can recruit guys, you can, you can tell your people where to build a building or something like that, but they have to go and do it. And you can offer rewards for your uh, warriors to, to go out and uh, attack a certain building or a certain uh, monster, but you can't make them do it. They all have their own free will. So it's interesting and they have different um, different uh, what do you call it? Different uh, uh, races. There's the, uh, the elves, there's the dwarves, and there's the gnomes. Um, none of which like each other, so you, you have to make your, your choice on which one to pick. Um, cho choose which uh, different faiths uh, can set up temples in your area. So some will be like more like the pagans, so they'll, they'll have power necromancy or uh, the earth or whatever. Or some will have like holy power. And again, you know, not all of them are compatible with each other. So you make different choices. I, I think it's kind of interesting, um, and it'll give us something to look at. Well, we do communist manifesto, so. That being said, uh, I'm going to queue up the Communist Manifesto, and actually I'm going to pause it pretty shortly into it because it's a pretty good opening. Uh, if you remember back to grade school when you have to write like a, a five paragraph essay, they always say, you gotta have an attention grabber. Well, this, this definitely does have an attention grabber, and I think it's pretty applicable to the modern day. Um, you can let me know what you think about that and see if you, see if you agree. Section 1 of the Communist Manifesto. Right. This is a LibriVox recording. Right All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Manifesto of the Communist Party by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Let me know if the, the sound is good, too. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where is the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism? against the more advanced opposition parties, as well as against its reactionary adversaries. Two things result from this fact. One, communism is already acknowledged by all European powers to be itself a power. Two, 
it is high time that communists should openly, in the face of the whole world, publish their views, their aims, their tendencies, and meet this nursery tale of the specter of communism with a manifesto of the party itself. To this end, communists of various nationalities have assembled in London and sketched the following manifesto to be published in the English, French, German, Italian, Flemish, and Danish languages. Section 1. Bourgeois and Proletarians the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journey. Just pause it for a second there. So, I mean, have you noticed some of the, the parallels between then and right now? It talks about the specter of communism haunting Europe, but a lot like many of the, the today's social movements seem to be kind of uh, haunting. The American psyche um, talks about how the, uh, the history of struggle is to be framed as the class struggle, and that, that tends to be what Marx views everything in terms of, is uh, not just a struggle against nature, a struggle of one faction against another, but a struggle of people that have money, not just money, but also the means of production. Uh, versus those that don't, those that work. So, uh, I mean, we talk about these same sorts of things today. They're very, very relevant. Freeman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. In the earlier epochs of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs. In almost all of these classes, again, subordinate gradations. The modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. Our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, possesses, however, this distinctive feature it has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. From the serfs of the Middle Ages sprang the chartered burghers of the earliest towns. From these burgesses, the first elements of the bourgeoisie were developed. The discovery of America the rounding of the Cape opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally, gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. 
feudal system of industry, under which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds, now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. The guildmasters were pushed on one side by the manufacturing middle class. Division of labor between the different corporate guilds vanished in the face of division of labor in each single workshop. Meantime, see that trend today. Never growing, the demand uh, division of labor continues to be more and more atomized. No longer sufficed. Thereupon, steam and machinery revolutionized industrial production. The place of manufacture was taken by the giant modern industry, the place of the industrial middle class, by industrial millionaires, the leaders of whole industrial armies, the modern bourgeois. Modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. This development has, in its time, reacted on the extension of industry, and in proportion as industry, commerce, navigation, railways extended, in the same proportion the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital, and pushed into the background every class handed down from the Middle Ages. We see, therefore, how the modern bourgeoisie is itself the product of a long course of development, of a series of revolutions in the modes of production and of exchange. Each step in the development of the bourgeoisie was accompanied by a corresponding political advance of that class. An oppressed class, under the sway of the feudal nobility, armed and self-governing association in the medieval commune, here independent urban republic, as in Italy and Germany, there taxable third estate of the monarchy, as in France, afterwards, in the period of manufacture proper, serving either the semi-feudal or the absolute monarchy as a counterpoise against the nobility, and in fact, cornerstone of the great monarchies in general, the bourgeoisie has at last, since the establishment of modern industry and of the world market, conquered for itself, in the modern representative state, exclusive political sway. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie historically has played a most revolutionary part. The bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It is I think this is an important part of the history that he's laying out, too. Uh, you think of today as, as, as you know, left-wingers being just completely opposed to um, capitalism and, and all of its... Um, and, and capitalists, people that, that own. But uh, it's important to, to realize that in, in Marx's time, capitalism was progress, uh, progressing from the old feudal systems. Uh, so instead of feudal lords being able to control anything, this, this was uh, people with money instead of just a title uh, and, and hereditary land, taking some of that power for themselves. So here, here, here we can see the long scope of, of history going from absolute control in the hands of very few to uh, 
great periods of time, like the capitalism didn't start all at once, and it came in fits and starts, and, and just little by little wrested little bits of power away until uh, we get ourselves to present day where, you know, other than being figureheads and, and having some souvenirs in, in title and, and a little bit of, of ceremonial power, there's not a lot of mar monarchies left. Uh, capitalism has, has been pretty successful in, in its revolution against uh, monarchism. Kind of ironic that you see people like uh, Caitlin Bennett and uh, Liberty Hangout now openly calling for a return to monarchy. And you see a lot of these so-called so uh, Western chauvinists talking about the same thing as some great imagined past. Like, they're not just harkening back to, say, the 1950s for some imagined uh, perfect past when they talk about things like making America great and restoring Western civilization. They're harkening back hundreds, thousands of years to, to a system. Uh, there wasn't a lot of, of autonomy for anybody. Um, everyone was, was basically in their place underneath the, the, the king at the top and you know, more and more so as you go down the line. So, it's, it's important to lay out this history to say that this is not just some reaction. These leftist ideas like communism are not just some reaction uh, wanting to, to undo what capitalism has done. Instead, what it's talking about is progressing, going forward, building off the ideas of individualism, individual liberty and uh, greater political stake and, and authority spread out over more and more people to um, putting power into greater and greater hands, greater and greater number of hands. So that's how communism should be uh, viewed, not as a reaction to, but a progression from capitalism. Uh, let's keep it going is pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors, and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism, in the icy water of egotistical calculation has resolved personal worth into exchange value, and in place of the numberless and indefeasible chartered freedoms, has set up that single, unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science, into its paid wage laborers. The bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. The bourgeoisie has disclosed how it came to pass that the brutal display of vigor in the Middle Ages, which reactionists so much admire, found its fitting complement in the most slothful indolence. It has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders, far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, 
Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. See, the bourgeoisie cannot exist. He's just giving a revolutionizing. I should say him and Nichols. Are just giving capitalism props for their doing. You know, it's the same thing. Done all these great, wonderful things. Let's keep that progress going. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. Constant revolutionizing of production uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation, distinguished the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All fixed, fast-frozen relations, with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions, are swept away. All new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the whole surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionists, it has drawn from under the feet of industry the national ground on which it stood. All old established national industries have been destroyed, or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries, whose introduction becomes a life-and-death question for all civilized nations, by industry that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones. Industries whose products are consumed not only at home, but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants, satisfied by the productions of the country, we find new wants, requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations, and as in material, so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most barbarian, nations into civilization. Cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations, on pain of extinction, to adopt the bourgeois mode of production, 
It compels them to introduce what it Not much has changed, has it? It still projects itself in the world that way. I.e., to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, Joining it creates a world after its own image. The bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns. It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the rural, and has thus rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life. Just as it has made the country dependent on the towns, so it has made barbarian and semi-barbarian countries dependent on the civilized ones, nations of peasants on nations of bourgeois, the east on the west. The bourgeoisie keeps more and more doing away with the scattered state of the population, of the means of production, and of property. It has agglomerated production, and has concentrated property in a few hands. The natural consequence of this was political centralization. Independent, or but loosely connected provinces, with separate interests, laws, governments, and systems of taxation, became lumped together into one nation, with one government, one code of laws, one national class interest, one frontier, and one customs tariff. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor? We see then the means of production and of exchange, on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up, were generated in feudal society. At a certain stage in the development of these means of production and of exchange, the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged, the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry, in one word, the feudal relations of property, became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces they became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder. Into their place stepped free competition, accompanied by a social and political constitution adapted to it, and by the economical and political sway of the bourgeois class. A similar movement is going on before our own eyes. Modern bourgeois society, with its relations of production, of exchange and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange, is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the nether world whom he is called up by his spells. For many a decade past, the history of industry and commerce is but the history of the revolt of modern productive forces against modern conditions of production against the property relations that are the conditions for the existence of the bourgeoisie and of its rule. It is enough to mention the commercial crises that by their periodical return put on its trial, each time more threateningly, the existence of the entire bourgeois society. 
In these crises, a great part, not only of the existing products, but also of the previously created productive forces, are periodically destroyed. In these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that, in all earlier epochs, would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. The productive forces at the disposal of society no longer tend to further the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they have become too powerful for these conditions, by which they are fettered, and so soon as they overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole of bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. The conditions of bourgeois society are too narrow to the wealth created by them. And how does the bourgeoisie get over these crises? On the one hand, in forced destruction of a mass of productive forces, on the other, by the conquest of new markets, and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones. That is to say, by paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises, and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. The weapons with which the bourgeoisie felled feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. But not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield these weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. In proportion as the bourgeoisie, i.e. capital, is developed, in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class, developed. A class of laborers who live only so long as they find work, and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers, who must sell themselves piecemeal, are a commodity, like every other article of commerce, and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition, to all the fluctuations of the market, Owing to the extensive use of machinery and to division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character, and consequently all charm for the workman. He becomes an appendage of the machine, and it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. Hence, the cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for his maintenance right. and for the propagation of his race. But the now that's sure applicable today to today. I'm talking about uh, upping the minimum wage and you know really tired counter arguments of oh how much do you think a burger flipper needs to make and all these sorts of things. Yeah, reduced to the people are they're still reduced in large part to the the basic amount that. Uh, they require it to survive. That, that, that's what the, the, the lowest level workers are still given. Now, capitalism has not changed in this respect. Over the, the only 
couple hundred years that it's it's been a uh, a large and dominant system. So I find that very interesting. The price of a commodity, and therefore also of labor, is equal to its cost of production. In proportion, therefore, as the repulsiveness of the work increases, the wage decreases. Nay, mm -hmm. more. Yeah. In proportion as the use of some of the worst jobs, like uh, dishwashing or garbage persons, the burden of toil well compensated, are they? Whether by increase of the work exacted in a given time, or by increased speed of the machinery, etc. Modern industry has the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers. As privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and above all, by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly this despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty, the more hateful, and more embittering it is. The less the skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor, in other words, the more modern industry becomes developed, the more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use, according to their age and sex. No sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash, than he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie, the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, etc. In the lower strata of the middle class, the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants, all these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by the new methods of production. Thus the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. The proletariat goes through various stages of development. With its birth begins its struggle with the bourgeoisie. At first the contest is carried on by individual laborers, then by the workpeople of a factory, then by the operatives of one trade, in one locality, against the individual bourgeois who directly exploits them. They direct their attacks not against the bourgeois conditions of production, but against the instruments of production themselves. They destroy imported wares that compete with their labor, they smash to pieces machinery, they set factories ablaze, they seek to restore by force the vanished status of the workmen of the Middle Ages. At this stage, the laborers still form an incoherent mass, scattered over the whole country, and broken up by their mutual competition. If anywhere they unite to form more compact bodies, this is not yet the consequence of their own active union, but of the union of the bourgeoisie, which class, 
in order to attain its own political ends, is compelled to set the whole proletariat in motion, and is moreover yet, for a time, able to do so. At this stage, therefore, the proletarians do not fight their enemies, but the enemies of their enemies, the remnants of absolute monarchy, the landowners, the non-industrial bourgeois, the petty bourgeoisie. Ah, that's an important point, too. Uh, you think about some of the holdovers, where, the, where like, where does the term landlord come from? Well, it literally comes from uh, the lorded class of people from feudalism, the, the lords and, and ladies and all the, all the different names for everything of feudalism. Uh, these are people that didn't work then and, and still, by and large, don't work today uh, in terms of actually producing any labor. Like, I'm sure plenty of you have thought they were rent. Uh, I know I do. Uh, my landlord, they've never actually met my, the person who actually owns my building. They hire a management company to interact with all the, the, the tenants, to hire out all the, the snow removal and everything, to do all the maintenance, or to contract all the maintenance out. Uh, and yet somehow the landlord gets money. It's funny, because they're not actually contributing any actual labor. They, in fact, just take my labor and my neighbor's labor for themselves. So he's talking about these as the vestiges of uh, the feudal system. And we still, we still have not been able to get rid of those, have we? We're still very much uh, under their control. Thus, the whole historical movement is concentrated in the hands of the bourgeoisie. Every victory so obtained is a victory for the bourgeoisie. But with the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses, its strength grows, and it feels that strength more. The various interests and conditions of life within the ranks of the proletariat are more and more equalized. In proportion as machinery obliterates all distinctions of labor, nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same low level. The growing competition among the bourgeois and the resulting commercial crises make the wages of the workers ever more fluctuating. The unceasing improvement of machinery, ever more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the workers begin to form combinations, trade unions, against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. They found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. Here and there, the contest breaks out into riots. Now and then, the workers are victorious but only for a time. The real fruit of their battle lies, not in the immediate result, but in the ever-expanding union of the workers. This union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry and that place the workers of different localities in contact with one another. It was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles, all of the same character, into one national struggle between classes. But every class struggle is a political struggle, and that union, to attain which the burghers of the Middle Ages 
with their miserable highways, required centuries, the modern proletarians, thanks to railways, achieve in a few years. This organization of the proletarians into a class, and consequently into a political party, is continually being upset again by the competition between the workers themselves, but it ever rises up again, stronger, firmer, mightier. It compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. Thus, the Ten Hours Bill in England was carried. Altogether, collisions between the classes of the old society further, in many ways, the course of development of the proletarian. The bourgeoisie finds itself involved in a constant battle, at first with the aristocracy, later on with those portions of the bourgeoisie itself, whose interests have become antagonistic to the progress of industry, at all times with the bourgeoisie of foreign countries. In all these battles it sees itself compelled to appeal to the proletariat, to ask for its help, and thus to drag it into the political arena. The bourgeoisie itself, therefore, supplies the proletariat with its own instruments of political and general education. In other words, it furnishes the proletariat with weapons for fighting the bourgeoisie. Further, as we have already seen, entire sections of the ruling classes are, by the advance of industry, precipitated into the proletariat, or are at least threatened in their new conditions of existence. These also supply the proletariat with fresh elements of enlightenment and progress. Finally, in times when the class struggle nears the decisive hour, the process of dissolution going on within the ruling class, in fact, within the whole range of society, assumes such a violent, glaring character that a small section of the ruling class cuts itself adrift and joins the revolutionary class the class that holds the future in its hands. Just as, therefore, at an earlier period, a section of the nobility went over to the bourgeoisie, so now a portion of the bourgeoisie goes over to the proletariat, and in particular, a portion of the bourgeois ideologists who have raised themselves to the level of comprehending theoretically the historical movement as a whole. Of all the classes that stand face to face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is its special and essential product. The lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, all these fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. They are therefore not revolutionary, but conservative. Nay, or they are reactionary, for they try to roll back the wheel of history. If by chance they are revolutionary, they are so only in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. They thus defend not their present, but their future interests. They desert their own standpoint to place themselves at that of the proletariat. The dangerous class, the social scum, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of old society, may, here and there, be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution, 
Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribe tool of reactionary intrigue. In the conditions of the proletariat, those of old society at large are already virtually swamped. The proletarian is without property. His relation to his wife and children has no longer anything in common with the bourgeois family relations. Modern industrial labor, modern subjection to capital, the same in England as in France, in America as in Germany, has stripped him of any trace of national character. Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices, behind which lurk in ambush just as many bourgeois interests. All the preceding classes that got the upper hand sought to fortify their already acquired status by subjecting society at large to their conditions of appropriation. The proletarians cannot become masters of the productive forces of society except by abolishing their own previous mode of appropriation, and thereby also every other previous mode of appropriation. They have nothing of their own to secure and to fortify. Their mission is to destroy all previous securities for and insurances of individual property. All previous historical movements were movements of minorities, or in the interests of minorities. The proletarian movement is the self-conscious, independent movement of the immense majority. In the interests of the immense majority, the proletariat, the lowest stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up, without the whole superincumbent strata of official society being sprung into the air. Though not in substance, yet in form, the struggle of the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. In depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we traced the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. Hitherto, every form of society has been based, as we have already seen, on the antagonism of oppressing and oppressed classes. But in order to oppress a class, certain conditions must be assured to it under which it can, at least, continue its slavish existence. The serf, in the period of serfdom, raised himself to membership in the commune, just as the petty bourgeois, under the yoke of feudal absolutism, managed to develop into a bourgeois. Modern laborer, on the contrary, instead of rising with the progress of industry, sinks deeper and deeper below the conditions of existence of his own class. He becomes a pauper, and pauperism develops more rapidly than population and wealth. And here it becomes evident that the bourgeoisie is unfit any longer to be the ruling class in society, and to impose its conditions of existence upon society as an overriding law. It is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within his slavery because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it has to feed him instead of being fed by him. 
Society can no longer live under this bourgeoisie. In other words, its existence is no longer compatible with society. The essential condition for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between the laborers. The advance of industry, whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by their revolutionary combination due to association. The development of modern industry, therefore, cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products. What the bourgeoisie, therefore, produces, above all, is its own gravediggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. End of section one. All right, well, that wraps up chapter one. So he's already, uh, basically this chapter was just about uh, laying out how his society has gone from, or, or their society, we'll just call it Marxist angles, have gone from feudalism to uh, uh, capitalism taking over as the, the dominant form, and how we can, how, why not move on from there, you know? Uh, so I think there's some very applicable ideas that, I mean, it's hard to tell how much this was just aspirational, that, that things would progress as they did. You see, Jeff talking about how it was inevitable for uh, capitalism to fall because of it just not able to, it was less and less able to prop up the people that it depended on. Uh, yeah, here we are. And, and Marx probably couldn't have known how it was going to go. Basically, the way that we've done that uh, as, as capitalist nations is by finding new nations to exploit. You know, uh, the labor market gets too expensive, you go move your operation overseas. That gets too expensive, too many regulations, you just keep moving around the world until eventually there's going to be no one left to exploit. Uh, and then what? Then where are you at? You know, people will still demand human rights and basic working and living conditions. Uh, it's got to come at the expense of someone. Right? So, uh, I hope you enjoyed the first chapter. So before I wrap the stream up, I just wanted to show you a few things. So we're going to pause the game. Um, so if you like what you saw, please follow here on Twitch. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, go over to Twitch. I'm at bread underscore theory. Now I'm just going to show you uh, my link tree where you can find all my links. So if you just go to linktr dot ee slash capital B bread underscore theory with a capital T. And that will take you right to my link tree and you can see all my different links for the various social media and the projects I'm working on. You can, you can look at my you can link to my uh, Twitch channel, to my YouTube channel. Uh, let's get some more. close that. Um, you can see my, my Facebook page. Uh, you can 
can see my, my Twitter account, my uh, Instagram, and then it'll also give you links to some of the projects that uh, the two groups that I manage on Facebook have been working on for quite some time now. Um, so first of all, the two projects are, you'll find them under uh, the Left Pod posting, where we talk all the time about various leftist podcasts, and then we also share memes, which is, you know, it's a community feel and that sort of thing. And then the more general Left Signal Boost, where we boost all sorts of leftist media. You can come find out about all that sort of stuff by going to my link tree and following those links or just searching for them on Facebook. Um, and our biggest project that we've put together so far is the Left Signal Boost database. We have various leftist producers of, of different media. Uh, we just categorized and listed out with links to all their stuff. Uh, some are more fleshed out than others, so you know that can give you an opportunity too. Say if you know something about leftist radio stations, we don't really have anything for that. Uh, if you want to get more involved and you want to learn more about leftist YouTube, there's definitely a, a lot to, to look from through there. This is our most complete list. We have just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of current leftist creators who are all working to, to produce the same sorts of things that I'm trying to produce here. Only they all have their own perspective, you know. Um, so we have categorized as much as we can by the, the discipline they subscribe to most, whether it's just general leftist, anarchist, socialist, communist, whatever it is. Um, and links to their stuff, and you can help us fill in more of the details. Uh, we have content categories and, and all sorts of stuff for that. And the best way to support me right now, aside from uh, subscribing to all my various social medias, is to go to my photography page. This is one of my longtime passions, doing nature photography of di different types. This is my uh, Society6 page. Um, that's also available in my link tree, you'll find that. And you can buy my art in various different forms. Uh, just one note on that, I get the biggest cut of the, the profit from the art, various types of art prints. So, you know, there's things like backpacks and, you know, fanny packs, cups, all sorts of things you can get my art on. And please, please do uh, whatever it is that you want. Um, just at least uh, give it a look over and, uh, you know, if you're looking for some good nature photography on a certain item, uh, just good chance that I got something that could uh, fill that need. So come check me out. Zach goes with photography on society6.com. Uh, other than that, I, um, if there's any suggestions you'd like, if you'd like me to use, if you are a, a artist of any kind, a creator who would like to have your work featured, say in the opening credits, uh, your music or your artwork or whatever, um, send me a message, probably the easiest way to reach me is on uh, Twitter, just send me an, uh, you know, a direct tweet. Um, otherwise, any, any of the social media links, just go right ahead and, and contact me, and I'd be more than happy to promote.